0: You're listening to Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to those who lived in the Mesa Verde region hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. This season, we've learned all about Mesa Verde National Park's designation as the 100th International Dark Sky Park, and the importance of preserving our dark night skies for the sake of the environment, but also as a way to preserve the cultural heritage of the ancestral people who called the Mesa Verde region their home. We've heard about the importance of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And how these elements of the skyscape have been observed by indigenous people in the Southwest for thousands of years, and still are today.
1: The night sky is almost like a documentation.
0: It's kind of like a, a book. Cultures all around the world have stories about their creation.
2: We carry this understanding and perspective of who we are as a new people.
0: And whether these stories have been written down on stone tablets, papers, cave walls, or if they've been carefully passed down by oral storytellers for countless generations, these stories are the core of who these groups are as a people.
1: When we talk about Navajo customs, beliefs, and way of life, and then we talk about Pueblo, and ancestral Puebloan times and customs. One of the things that we notice a lot is how the Pueblos um, and ancestral and, you know, sites like Mesa Verde, Chaco, they documented a lot in, in regards to petroglyphs, pictographs, um, and even the architecture of their structures revolving around solstices, They're revolving around the movement of the sun, the movement of the, of the, of the moon.
0: This is Ravis Henry. If you've listened to the previous episodes this season, you'll remember that he's Navajo, or Diné, and lives near Canyon de Chelly in northwest Arizona.
1: For the Navajo people, it's kind of the opposite. So for Navajo people, we didn't pay as much attention to the detail and positions of the sun and the moon I and mean, their movement across the sky. Our documentations of the night sky, so the constellations and the stars... So when you go to places like Chaco and um, Aztec ruins, Mesa Verde, you know you'll see a lot of rock art and connections in their dwellings to the solstices, to the moon, to the sun, to eclipses. You'll see a lot of that.
0: So far this season, we've only talked about rock art, petroglyphs and pictographs that were created by ancestral Pueblo people such as the rock art potentially documenting the 1054 supernova and the 1097 appearance of Halley's Comet in Chaco Canyon.
1: But in other areas, especially here at Canyon de Chelly, you'll see Navajo pictographs and petroglyphs that are documenting the night sky. And We have a lot of winter stories that tie us to the stars and how they came into existence, how they um, remind us of different stories and teachings.
0: To understand the nature of these Navajo star stories and the way that they are shared, it's important to understand a bit about the Navajo worldview.
1: We live in, I guess, what you would consider the circle of life. We are in balance with everything, and we are no greater than anything else. We're only a part of this world that we live in. And between the earth and sky, there's all different beings, there's all different groups of people not just human beings, not just five-fingered spiritual people. We have the earth. We have the sky. We have the air. We have the rain. We have the snow. And we have all the different plant life, the plant beings, the plant people, the insects, the birds, the reptiles, the amphibians, the animals, the sea life. All these different things are all considered beings. They're all have a spirit. They're all alive. And they listen to us. They also speak to us and communicate to us. Certain times of the year, through different seasons, some of these plants, some of these animals, some of these different beings, they hibernate. And when that happens, it's typically in the winter months. And there's certain deities that make themselves known throughout the winter.
0: And it's during these winter months that the Navajo people share their stories.
1: Stories of creation, Stories of origin, how things came into existence, how things came to be.
0: And they share these stories during this time for a few reasons.
1: One, our stories are about all people. All these different people, these groups of people that I mentioned.
0: And remember, when Ravis uses the word people here, he means all beings on Earth, including plants and animals.
1: And sometimes, different groups of people don't like to be talked about. Just like some of us wouldn't like to be talked about as well. So we talk talked about these stories that include certain beings in the wintertime when they're hibernating, when they're sleeping, so that they're not listening to us and so that they don't think that we're calling for them. For example, the snakes, the bears. You know, we don't want them to show up at our homes in the summertime for telling these stories. So we speak about them when they're hibernating and when they're sleeping.
0: And another reason why certain stories are only shared in the winter is perhaps a bit more logistical.
1: Basically, taking advantage of the light that we have throughout the days. In the uh, summer months, we have long days and short nights. And with the long days and short nights, we spend a lot of that time outside working in the cornfields, we are outside preparing the ceremonies and taking advantage of all the light that we've had that we have. This was all of course before electricity. So some of our people would be up early in the morning at four o'clock, starting their day, doing work, continuously being occupied all the way into the evening until darkness. And in the summertime that's around ten o'clock or so, people would finally lay down and rest up for the night and start the cycle over. When we get into the winter months We have longer nights and shorter days. So we take advantage of the daylight we do have to do whatever work we can. But the sun sets by 5 o'clock, and we still have about five hours before bedtime. So those times are spent indoors around the fireplace. They're spent inside telling stories, sharing the stories of origin, sharing the stories of how things came into existence, such as the stars the story of the world, stories of creation itself. And we take advantage of that time while we're inside, inside the setting of our home, with the fire burning and different spiritual or ceremonial elements also involved. So that's why we speak about these stories in the wintertime and not in the summertime. And the story is told in the wintertime of how the stars were created. But with that, there were there are specific constellations that were created, different symbols, and placed in certain areas. And each of these remind us of different things. They teach us different things. They tell us, um, you know, how to live a good life. They talk and they tell us stories about the responsibilities of fatherhood, motherhood, um, and then some of them. We were designed to be followed throughout the different seasons for different purposes, such as when to start winter ceremonies, winter storytelling, when to start summer ceremonies, when to plant. And then the um, night guy in the universe is also tied to our overall way of life as Navajo people.
0: Because I talked to Ravis about this during the summertime, and because people may listen to this podcast during any time of year. Ravis shared some elements of Navajo stories with us that are able to be shared outside of the winter storytelling season.
1: One that I'll elaborate on is um, the North Star, the Big Dipper, and Cassiopeia. And that one is actually tied to um, kind of like our homes and how um, we move throughout our homes and how we have a home Dead, and we have a particular way of raising our kids, our family. In the Navajo world, in the Navajo way of life, we are matrilineal, so women have more authority over the men in our way of life. In other words, the women the women are the boss. They, they rule the world. We take on our mother's identity. My first clan, my first identity, is actually my mother's clan and mother's identity. And she is the one who bears life, who gave me life. And I, you know, as as we all do with our mothers, we've spent a certain amount of our time being molded inside of our mother's womb. So that's why we take on our mother's identity, and that's why we are matrilineal, because of that understanding. And up in the night sky, Nahokonspa'ad, which is Cassiopeia. She is a symbol of motherhood. She's a symbol of our females. And she represents the strength of the females. She represents motherhood. She represents sisterhood. She represents um, the strength and knowledge that her grandmothers have. um, And our aunts and our granddaughters, etc. And she's a reminder of the teachings and the roles and responsibilities that a woman would have inside a home. Not to say that they're the only ones that do these things, but they kind of have jurisdiction, if you will. They have the say so over things that occur inside the home. They're the first to teach their children how to love, how to care, how to take care of themselves. They're there, you know, watching their their children grow up instilling basic knowledge of life how to take care of themselves how to walk how to clean how to cook So she's responsible for all of that knowledge ensuring that the child gets it doesn't necessarily mean that the mother is the one that shares everything but is responsible for making sure her children know that and on the opposite side of the home is the uh, men the fathers First, a, a, a major, the Big Dipper, it represents fatherhood. First, a major is a symbol of all the men, the male in our family, and the men are responsible for a lot of the physical teachings of our way of life. You know, instilling the young, the young um, children, how to hunt, how to work, how to build things how to navigate, how to become a warrior. And it's reminded to us by Ursa Major, Nahokonspaka. And in the fireplace of the center, just like in our homes, we have a fireplace in our homes. In our traditional Navajo homes, they're round structures.
0: If you've driven through the Southwest, you may have seen one of these round homes on the landscape. These are called hogans.
1: And the fireplace is in the center of the home. During time of ceremonies, We separate genders sometimes, where all the women will sit on the north side of the home and all the men will sit on the south side of the home. Just like the way Cassiopeia and the Big Dipper are separated in the night sky. And then just like the way the Big Dipper and Cassiopeia revolve around the fireplace, we revolve around the fireplace the same way when we enter our traditional home. We move clockwise around the fireplace, just like the stars do around the the North Star. And the North Star is a symbol of comfort. It's a symbol of light and energy. It's the warmth, it's the fireplace, it's the light of the home. And everything revolves around it. The fireplace is where prayers are shared and uttered. And just like the fireplace in our home, the fireplace in the night sky, Polaris, is tied to all of that as well. But so those are just some of the teachings or stories that we have with the night sky. And these ones are, are teachings that we can share year round about these three constellations. But other stories about how the stars were created with the stories tied to the coyote and how the uh, specific constellations, you know, their stories of origin and their connection to our people A lot of those stories are shared in the wintertime only. But this, what I've shared at this point, can be shared year-round.
0: This practice of sharing stories during certain times of year isn't unique just to the Navajo. This is a tradition in indigenous cultures across North America, especially in the places where the weather and daylight hours change. Throughout this season of the show, We've heard a Navajo perspective from Ravis, and we've also heard a Zuni perspective from Octavius Sayatua and Curtis Quam. They shared that Zuni also reserves the sharing of certain stories for certain times of year, and Octavius explained why.
3: There's just one reason, uh, is that when the medicine societies uh, put to rest their kettle drums and their rattles is when... The snakes come out, and uh, the snakes are are also a reason why we don't have storytelling in the summer, and uh, that's it's a a big taboo. The uh, winter storytelling time starts is when the first uh, medicine society puts rest to all the snakes with prayers and prayer sticks, and uh, that is uh, the start of the uh, storytelling.
0: Ravis shared that the Navajo reserved the sharing of their creation stories for the winter storytelling season. So I asked Octavius and Curtis what kinds of stories the Zuni save for this special time of year.
2: As you know, stories have two different definitions. One that's more fable and uh, the other that's more our history. And so those two that we understand, but we have different names. So that for our winter stories, we call them Tilapnawe. And for our more history, we refer to them as penau. Generally, uh, there's more, <laughs> uh, a better uh, place to express that word. So the stories that are fables, that have lessons are really important uh, that they're recited during the appropriate time. So there are some things like our connection to Mesa Verde, where we came from, from the Grand Canyon, that we can talk about year-round, that it's not the fable side of who we are, but it's more actual truth. And I've, I've heard Tavis a Smith mention this and very adamant to let people know that this is an important part of who we are. That this is our history.
0: So as Curtis said, the stories documenting the history of the Zuni, such as their ancestors' migrations, are stories that can be shared year-round, but their fables are reserved for the winter season. You've likely heard the term fable before, but if you're a bit rusty on the definition, fables are oftentimes short stories involving animals, and sometimes people, who learn a lesson from a certain experience. Of
3: course, these are made-up stories, but they have a point. They have a lesson that is always in the end of all of the stories. A lot of these are, are the observance of the sun and the moon, the movement. Everything has a, a reason. You know, these elders made made up the stories, but there's always a lesson in the end. And I think that's one of the... Uh, the great examples of of the ingenuity of our ancestors coming up with these stories because it's never written. And uh, each individual had their own way, um, and some of these were uh, made by the individuals themselves.
0: Remember that when we're talking about this storytelling season within Zuni, these stories are being shared orally, retained in memory by elders, and passed down to the next generation and sometimes newly crafted by an elder to share specific lessons within the community.
3: There might be an elder that um, had an understanding of the movement of the sun and the moon, and he would make a a story out of that. So uh, it wasn't one continuous uh, uh, repetition of stories. It was all made up by individuals, sometimes comical, sometimes very serious, sometimes scary. Uh, is what they put in their stories and, like I said, had uh, an ending that that would um, be like a lesson or a warning or uh, anything like that within their stories.
0: Because Octavius and Curtis spoke with me during the summertime, outside of the winter storytelling season, they weren't able to share any specific fables with us. But as they mentioned, Some of these fables speak about the movement of the moon and sun and elements of the night sky. And, as we've heard, these fables contain lessons or warnings that have been observed by the elders who created them.
3: If you think of our ancestors a long time ago, sitting on a rock ledge, pointing to the stars, they're still in alignment, they're still in the same movement, the same positions, And so we observed that any other activity would be a bad omen for the Zuni people. So growing up, we were instructed by our ancestors to never look at the stars or never look in the sky or don't count the stars. Um, It was because they were in this fear of any unusual alignment within the stars as an mentioned that we could be shown something
2: that is not favorable to us um one of the things that i can think about is um you know like a falling star for other cultures um or maybe just uh, my understanding of it is like other cultures will make a wish on a falling star if we happen to see a falling star and we're not intending to look up at the night sky um that that could be considered like think like a bad onto too that might happen within our upcoming days so we we really try to refrain from looking up too much um but when you're with the guidance of somebody uh, from our elders to help you know teach and show you that there the is an important part of our understanding of uh, of our, our lives and our identity as many people is that the night sky is important and that there's cert- certain, you know, beings, certain life, certain energy that, that, that comes from the night sky. Um, and I think that's something that we maybe might have been conveyed to us in, in that form of uh, a taboo to make sure that we respect the energies and the, the, the presence of life that's up there. So that's something I think might be a really big thing for us, is and what our elders have cautioned us throughout the years and learning from their elders and so on. Uh, to understand that this is really part of who we are and um, that we'll continue this practice.
0: This tradition of avoiding looking too deeply into the night sky is still observed today in Zuni. But at times it can be challenging as American or Euro American cultures bring their influence, like for younger generations in schools.
2: You know, f- from, for me, like, uh, and kids we well are both parents and My daughter, she's uh, did a schoolwork project on one of the uh, planets. And uh, I know the the beliefs on looking at the night sky and all that, Uh, but for this presentation and and now looking into these modern kind of things that were like Davis and I both have sometimes to deal with issues that come up for Zuni in a a cultural perspective of educating people of understanding that this is a part of who we are
0: Octavius, Curtis, and other adults within Zuni work to sort of bridge the gap between Western science and education, while still maintaining these important traditions at the core of the Zuni people.
2: So for night sky initiatives that are available for us, you know, we really don't explore that too much, unless it's um, at a time to where we really need to um, set a precedent or just set a voice, a calming and guiding voice for future generations of Zunis to understand that uh, there is an important wisdom within uh, the night sky. So I think that's a really important part of uh, what makes us who we are.
0: The Navajo and the Zuni are two different cultures of people who share ancestral homelands, but not necessarily common ancestors. However, in my conversation with Ravis, he brought up similar sentiments that the Navajo have in regards to the power of the night sky and the way that they interact with it.
1: Growing up as kids a long time ago, they used to tell us, you know, don't look up at the night sky. Don't stare at it. If you do, you're going to get lost. Your mind's going to go crazy. And sometimes I think about it, you know, how scientists, they get immersed into the night sky and, and then they can't stop looking up there. They can't stop researching. They want more and more and soon... Their whole life is focused up there when we're still trying to live down here. And then they used to say, you know, like shooting stars, you know, in the Western world, they say, oh, a shooting star, make a wish. But for us as Navajo people, shooting stars are a uh, taboo. And it goes back to our winter stories of how the stars were created. When, you, when we're told that you're not actually supposed to see shooting stars, and it's a, it's a form of bad luck, bad energy that you're welcoming into your life. There's a lot of uh, conflicting views and understanding from our traditional way of life and from the Western concept. To go into deeper conversation would be inviting folks to actually sit down at a table, preferably in the wintertime, around the fireplace and talking. And some of these conversations could go all night, trying to understand and um, make sense of these different perspectives.
0: We've talked a lot this season, and throughout this show, really, about the long tradition of oral history and oral storytelling within the descendants of the Mesa Verde region. For folks who are descendants of European ancestors like myself, or any other culture that has roots in written documented history, this concept of oral history can be challenging to relate to. Sometimes it doesn't neatly mesh with so-called Western concepts of science or research or ways of knowing things. And understandably, this can be frustrating and at times insulting to those with oral traditions to have to prove things about themselves and their own histories because their ways of knowing don't align perfectly with the dominant cultures. So after all of our discussion about storytelling, Octavius had some perspective to offer about the oral history tradition in Zuni.
3: They say that our history is just through oral, but I want to change that concept and idea because the information that they left behind is information that we use to identify and really strengthen our our history.
0: Today, Octavius is a member of a medicine society within Zuni, which is a religious group entrusted with certain information and traditions.
3: This of history was uh, mentioned or talked about when we went into, what well, I'm talking for myself, for my medicine society, and I had elders talk about some of these far, far away places.
0: These are places that the Zuni ancestors have lived and traveled through on their way to where they are today.
3: It really starts from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to where we are and where we have been, and uh, connecting all of those dots that makes uh, our people uh, who we are, makes us whole, all of that information is uh, written on canyon walls and uh, petroglyphs and pictographs. And uh, without that information, it would be just another, um, another story, another part of our history that, that would be very difficult to make people understand but because they left all that information and we know what that information is saying within all of these places that we've uh, worked with that we can identify what they left behind. So now it's, it's not just oral history because our history is written. All we have to do is find it. All we have to do is, is identify and, and uh, make people aware and understand that this information is our history. So now this of history is now becoming history that is written in, in places that we visited, places that we've worked. So it's, it's in a full picture of who the Zuni people are because of the
0: information that they left behind. We've covered a lot of information in this season. We've talked about dark skies, unihedron sky quality meters, astronomical alignments within ancestral sites, Zuni and Navajo names for constellations, just to name a few. And I'd like to end this season the same way we've ended previous seasons. At the end of each interview, I always like to ask descendants of the Mesa Verde region what they would like you, the listeners of this podcast and visitors to national parks, to know about them, their ancestors, their people, and their cultures today. First, let's hear from Ravis. Well,
1: one of the first and foremost things that I'd like to you know, let listeners know is that, one, we're still here. <laughs> there's a lot of talk, especially in the parks, of how there's a past tense in the interpretation of these places. Uh, it's just where people used to live. You know, this is what people used to do. Um, in reality, we're all still here. We <laughs> might not be as great and powerful as we were back then, that we might not be living in those exact dwellings that they're going and taking pictures of, but we're still here. We are all descendants, whether we're Navajo, Ute, Southern Ute, Paiute, or Apache, or Hopi, Tewa, Zumi, Akuma, Laguna. We're all descendants of these people who we look at as people of the past. We're all still here, We all still exist. We have our understandings of the world. We have our language. We have our ceremonies. And with that, the one thing that I would really like to bring to light or to to share with our visitors is to, you know, when you come to these places, know that we're here, but also come with an open mind and come with a sense of respect that we have our own way of seeing this world and our way, our connection to these places. They might be different from yours, but we would like to have that respect from you all when you come and visit our homeland. I would really like to you know, share that these places or these parks are more than just a tourist destination. They're more than just a tourist attraction. They're more than just a place to get your selfie and your Instagram photos try to hear the stories of these places Try to hear and understand with an open mind what these places mean to us as Navajo as indigenous people of these lands as the original caretakers of these places and the original people of this continent. You know, we once were in the millions several hundred years ago, living on this continent, and now we're considered minorities. We were the first people on these continents, and then we weren't considered Americans until 1925 or 1926. And today, from the thousands of tribes that once were on this continent, there's only around about a thousand, maybe two thousand tribes still left And only 560 or so of them are federally recognized and honored as tribal nations. But with that said, there's at least 560 different ways that people understand this continent, that people understand this landscape that we live on. And this understanding goes back hundreds to thousands of years. So that's what I would like to definitely at least bring to light and let visitors know, let visitors think on this, ponder on this, and just come in with an open mind and an open heart and a sense of respect to our homes, our sacred places, to these parts.
0: Next, here is what Octavius would like to share. We did not disappear. We're still here. The people
3: had a destination. The, the, They were there at a certain period in time, but because this was not designated for the individual Puebloan people that they moved on and they found their niche, they found their place. And that's where we all are as as Puebloan uh, people that we now reside in, in our places that were designated for us. It was given and identified for our people to find. And that's what we're looking for. And so these places have not been abandoned. Um, we're still here and we want people to know that uh, in order for them to get a full picture of who we are, is to come visit us in our bubbles and, and see our, our observance, see our celebration, see our way of life, to have a better understanding of the people that, um, that are still in Missouri.
0: And finally, here's what Curtis wanted to share.
2: We're still here. Um, we haven't left. We haven't gone anywhere. We moved to a place where it was where home was to be, and but uh, we always went back to connect to these resources that were very important and are still very important to our well-being. And and now we're helping shape um, museums and other repositories uh, to have a better understanding of the collections that they keep and hopefully reinvigorate some of the utilitarian items that uh, were so important to our ancestry and important for us today about these very important um, historical understandings of what makes Mesa Verde uh, an ancestral site instead of a ruin is, is from our experiences there, uh, that we know that there's a really important connection when we enter these areas. There's a lot of power in that place. And we're a part of that. We give that um, designation and we give that respect uh, to these really important places. You know, it's just not uh, you know, a ruin or it's not just remnants of walls, that they're still there. Um, and the stories that um, are echoing in the walls um, are still kind of moving around within our community today.
0: Thank you for listening to Season 5 of Mesa Verde Voices. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Association. This season is made possible through a grant from Colorado Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and mixed by Ken Petrosky. Our theme music is by David Morella. For more information about the Zuni people, the Navajo people, and all the people who call Mesa Verde their homelands, you can find links to their respective websites on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. For more information about Dark Skies at Mesa Verde National Park, you can visit nps.gov forward slash m-e-v-e. And follow Mesa Verde National Park on Facebook and Instagram for up-to-date information on park hours and road and trail openings. Again, you can find links to all the places mentioned throughout this season on our website, Mesa Special thanks to Octavia Sayatua, Curtis Quam, Ravis Henry, Spencer Burke, Erica Ellingson, and Betty Maya Foote for sharing your wisdom and stories with us this season. You can find our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on when new episodes release. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.